This is At the Edge of the Ledge, the podcast where abortion, faith, and politics collide. We talk about all things related to reproductive freedom, including the politics of abortion. We are taking our stories out of the shadows because stories drive culture. Culture drives politics. And faith affects all of it. I am Reverend Erica Forbes. I am Sonia Miller. And I am Angela Williams. We are your hosts, and we're faith leaders working for Texas Freedom Network as the Outreach and Faith Team based in Texas. Join us each week as we share stories where abortion, faith, and politics collide. On today's episode, we talk about the way that reproductive justice intersects and shapes our lives with Reverend Kenyetta Chinwe from Sister Song. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so glad we're joining back up again. It's been, oh, like a couple of weeks since we've recorded a podcast. And some of us have been on vacation, and this is our first day back, and it's uh, a little rough, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little rough. Re-entry. Yeah. Yes. Easing back in. Yes, yeah. it's a little hard. So, yeah. Angela, how are you today? I am doing all right. Um, it, it is a little rough, and I'm not a morning person. And so if you've listened to some of our other podcasts, you might be able to tell that we record in the morning and that it takes me a little bit to wake up. But I, I, we have now reached the, the point of quarantine life where I am ready to get up at a reasonable hour, reasonable hour of the day and like drink my coffee before I sit down at my desk and eat my breakfast before I sit down at my desk. <laughs> Now, these are basic levels of human functioning, yes, but it's still uh, a good achievement and especially just given um, the world and all of the good, bad, and bestness of the world, um, I'm finding it really important to kind of have those slower morning moments um, to just become more centered and grounded uh, before being in the world and all of the mess that's there. It's true. Erica, how are you? Welcome. Welcome back. And how are you today? I'm doing good. I took yesterday off. So I feel like, um, I feel like I can make it through today. So Mm -hmm. that's good. Well then Angela, will you kick us off with what's good in the world today? I wish that I was it. could see your face. Right. There was a look that like, was are it. you serious right now? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that was my good. Oh, that was it. That you're again? here and that everything that I'm is. I'm here and that, having yeah. slow mornings, getting regrouped, um, making that time for personal time. To, to really spend time with myself and with my partner before we go into the day and into the world and all of the chaos um, and the badness that is happening in the world um, and on the internet and in the news and in politics um, and in faith world, especially right now. Um, it's good to carve out and protect that, that personal time. 
Mm. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Well, Erica, I think I'm going to ask you, what's bad? Well, I mean, I would love to pick from the vast array of badness that is the shit show called our country right now. And it feels like I basically have a buffet table to choose from. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's a buffet table of badness. Mm -hmm. So for today's entree, I shall be choosing the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. I believe that's how it's Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, as our listeners may know, when the, you hear this, you'll remember that uh, the shooting has taken place uh, uh, two days ago. A father of three mm-hmm. shot in the back seven times. And so, you know, I have to say, though, as an African-American woman, my response was just uh numbness I went right to numbness usually I just get outraged and sad and all the things but yesterday when I listened to it I just went right to numbness and I just couldn't even function and so I had to you know had to pull it together as best I could and um so it's just it's it's so bad you you don't even have context for it anymore mm-hmm. like you just I, I got nothing you know, and then, and, and I just feel, I feel badly, you know, I feel badly for what's happening in our country and I feel badly for all of us, like all of us. So Mm -hmm. what's bad is really bad. Like, it's not like a little bad or kind of bad or halfway bad. It's just really bad. So, um, you know, there's really no words. And in some of the, and in this moment, it's just, there's just no words. So Mm. it's just really bad. So that's, what's bad right now. Well, I want to, I want to say to you that I, I was deeply moved and affected by your Facebook live yesterday. We were in the middle of trying to figure out just what it was you were feeling Mm -hmm. when you were, you were just sitting in the numbness mm-hmm. and, and I really, um, I really appreciate your willingness to be so vulnerable about where you were and, ha- and what was happening for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then thank you for being here with us today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, and being able to, to speak your truth. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Sure. Thank you. And so after that, I'm left with what's best. Mm. Um, And sometimes it's really hard to find that good, let alone the best. Mm -hmm. But right now I'm really feeling the best is that we have this community we have created the mm-hmm. the place where we can come and really speak what we're feeling, mm-hmm. um, where we can come with no shame, judgment, and stigma, and know that however we show up, we're going to be held and honored. Um, and so for me, when it gets really shitty, I think I really look forward to to coming and being in the presence of, of all of you. 
And so for me, that's what's best right now. Well, you know, I have to say, this is off script, that I'm super excited about today. That was one of the things that I was able to like eke out some level of you know, happiness today was to be able to wake up and see that I, and be reminded that I get to have the speaker that we're going to have today. And we get to interview her and talk to her and hear her words of wisdom and her insight. And I, I just feel like it's pretty, you know, it's pretty damn spectacular, you know, to be able to work with people and to even know people like her. So let me, let me just get down to it. So t- today on our show, for all our listeners, we have an amazing, amazing guest. And, and her name is Kenyatta, and I don't want to butcher it. It's Chinwe, right? Right. Um, she is the project coordinator, you know, Amplified Project Coordinator. Her pronouns are she, her, and hers. Uh, Kenyatta is a Black queer woman of Caribbean heritage, Um, As the daughter, granddaughter, and niece of generations of Pentecostal Christian ministers, we could really, there's a lot we could unpack there, but (laughs) I digress. She's been immersed in a faith community since birth, probably in utero. I'm ad-libbing here. While a young artist singing and reciting in church, she was always interested in using her gifts to push the world in the direction of liberation, equity, equality, and harmony. Her desire to use both her art and faith as agents for change in the tradition of many African-American artists before her motivated her to attend Howard University. Uh, I'll just pause for a moment. Howard University, first as a classical voice major, then shifting majors to musical theater. She was herself ordained as an apostolic in the apostolic church in 1997 but has since separated from that denomination. Her quest to understand and fully embrace the spiritual aspects of life and service led her to explore the areas of faith-based leadership by engaging in two nine-month processes that conferred her on the titles of priestess and high priestess, respectively. Listen, not everybody can have the title of priestess, let alone high priestess. I cannot wait to hear about that. In the course of those processes, she was also ordained as a minister in the Madonna ministry under under her mentor and high priestess facilitator, Lisa Michaels. The last 15 years, she spent working in finance, but she now utilizes the skills that she gained in faith-based leadership, arts, and management to advance the work of reproductive justice as the Sister Song Amplify Project Coordinator. She's working to build a base of faith leaders and people of faith to support the cause of reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive access. She still pursues her love of the arts, and you will see her performing from time to time in the Atlanta area. She released her debut EP, Seasons, in 2015 and is currently working on a full-length recording project. Now, I'm just going to say right off the bat, I already feel like... I have not done anything with my life after reading (laughs) bio. So if you're also, as our listeners, if you too feel that way, it's all right. Because I feel like I have been a sloth for the last 50 years. So that being said, we can all relax. We are all not her and it's all right. 
So I'm super thrilled to have you here. How are you, love? How are you? Thanks for having me. I am okay. I'm doing okay, as best as can be um, in the times that we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a big-ass statement, as best as can be. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big statement. Um, it's really exciting to have you here. And I, I think I want to just start by jumping right in with how you came to work at the intersection of abortion, faith, and politics. Your, your, pro, your bio tells us the legitimate sort of stance of how you came to it. But like, what's like the real deal? Like what happened? So um, in 2015, um, during the election uh, season of t- 2015, um, I used my Facebook uh, as um, a uh, soapbox, so to speak. Um, I did a lot of posting and um, screaming into the abyss, as I call it. Um, and uh, during that process, um, there were people who who appreciated my analysis, but I was still working in finance at the time. There was I didn't have a lot of time to commit to uh, any type of movement work, uh, let alone anything specific. Um, and so most of my advocacy and most of uh, what I was doing was online. And then 2016 uh, happened. And um, like so many others, I was upset, but not surprised because as a, I'm kind of like an amateur historian and I saw where it was going. And that was what all of the screaming into the abyss that I was doing in mm-hmm. 2015 is because I was like, I see where this is headed. We got to not let this happen. But um mm-hmm. But after that, I literally um, started praying literally every day. I was like, it's hard for me to go to work uh, every day doing working in corporate America when I see that uh, the most marginalized among us, including myself, it's part of that marginalized group is in danger. And I and I have to be able to help. And so literally every day I started praying and I said, I wanted to ask God, I said, I want it to be useful in this time that we are in. Um, I, I, and I um, prayed that prayer literally almost every day of 2016. In 2017, uh, I started doing um, some, started participating as a member um, in um, some grassroots level uh, advocacy. And then in 2018, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I can't do this corporate thing anymore. I really need to be doing work that's helping people. Um, And so um, I, in July of 2018, wrote a list of what it was that I wanted to do, what I wanted to contribute and how I wanted to contribute. And um, I said a prayer and I literally said it on my desk in my office at home. And then in the end of 2018, the position for, at Sister Zone became available and um, I applied. And I applied not because I had ever done, I'd, I've never been an organizer uh, before working at Sister Zone, but I speak the language of faith is what I say. Um, I was born into a faith community, a traditional, you know, Abrahamic faith community. Um, I did that you know, until I was about 18 or 19. When I went away to college, I tell people I experimented with religions like other people experiment with drugs in college. And so um, I, went through, I went through my fair share of religious expressions, um, mm-hmm. trying to find 
um, a place that I could reconcile all of myself um, mm. with God. Mm-hmm. And um, so I have, I speak this faith language that, it, that kind of uh, crosses expression. And I knew that that could be an advantage for me um, working at this intersection um, of faith and reproductive justice, because as a queer person, I had my lived experience was me fighting to have bodily autonomy and have the reproductive mm-hmm. rights, health and justice that I needed for myself. So um, I applied in 2018 and I got the job and I started at Sister Song in 2019, January. Well, Kenyatta, can you tell us a little bit about reproductive justice and what it is as a whole framework and where it came from and how it's manifested now? Sure. So um, brief history in 1994, 12 Black women um, coined the phrase reproductive justice. It was um, born out of the understanding that the larger choice movement at the time was not necessarily uh, covering every aspect of uh, reproductive inequality that Mm. women of color um, and poor women were facing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they came up with this term um, to represent the the place where reproductive rights and social justice intersect. Um, Mm. And there are four tenets of reproductive justice um, we believe that everyone has the human right to have children, to not have children, to parent the children that they have in safe um, environments, free from state-sanctioned and interpersonal violence, and the right to bodily autonomy. Uh, that uh, concept was uh, helped to create the organization Sister Song that started in 1997. Um, Luz Rodriguez, who was one of our uh, Founding Mothers was our one of our first um, uh, executive directors. Loretta Ross was one of the first organizational directors. Um, and uh, it was born out of um, the concerns of four major communities, uh, the Black African-American community, the Asian American community, and the indigenous Native American community and Latin, Latina um, community at that time, um, to have their needs addressed, to talk about things like not just choice, but access Mm -hmm. to abortion care, Mm -hmm. but not just access to abortion care, but overall health care that many of the people in those demographics did not have access to. Also about economic resources, um, political power that allowed us as uh, women and people who can birth power to make the decisions for ourselves. And for us, that is what reproductive freedom looks like is when Mm -hmm. we, when everyone has the political, economic, social power and resources to make decisions for their reproductive health and their bodies and their families. Mm -hmm. Mm. You're already answering a question that we're going to get to (laughs) later of like, what is reproductive freedom? (laughs) Thank you so much, Kenyatta. Yeah, you mentioned um, that reproductive justice was born out of intersectionality. Um, and and you, you just briefly touched on that. But I would ask you to tell our listeners, what, do you, what does it mean in the movement when we talk about intersectionality? And can you give our listeners some really concrete ways to grasp onto this idea that's kind of become 
a buzzword that people are throwing around, but I feel like sometimes people don't really know what it means. So, what does it look uh, like? The simplest uh, definition um, of intersectionality is the ways that intersecting systems of oppression affect a life. Um, a lot of times we use intersectionality wrong in that um, we say, oh, this person is an intersectional person. Like it's the intersectionality is a framework. It's not a person. I can live at, a, at several intersections. And that talks about how the intersecting systems of oppression affect my life. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, I am a black, queer, gender fluid uh, woman. I live at, you know, those intersections and the systems of oppression that uh, affect my life at those intersections is what intersectionality is talking about. Um, to, I guess, give a concrete example is going back to like the four tenets of reproductive okay, justice. Um, uh, like I said, the four tenets of reproductive justice are, I think, are such a great example um, because a lot of times when you talk about um, when you say anything reproductive, people automatically think abortion. And then even though abortion mm-hmm. is a big part of uh, what we are advocating for as a reproductive justice advocates, it is not the only thing. Like, like I said, you know, we understand that um, part of our reproductive freedom also talks about living in safe environments, free from uh, state sanction and interpersonal violence. So for mm-hmm. example, uh, Jacob Blake's babies, watching him get shot oh. mm. is a reproductive justice issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that is <laughs> probably the most uh, prescient uh, example that I can give of an, an intersection of reproductive justice. Um, people would look at that and they think about, you know, police brutality and, and uh, you know, the social issue. But every time this happens, I think about the babies. Um, I actually made a Facebook post yesterday about how black babies are robbed of their innocence and then punished for not being innocent. Mm. Um, Mm. If you look at the uh, police shooting incidents that have happened over the last four to five years, there's so many children that are involved. Tatiana Jefferson's eight-year-old nephew watched her get shot. Right. Blendo Castile's four-year-old toddler yeah. watched him yeah. get shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jacob Blake's babies watched him get shot, you know, and mm-hmm. um and they lose their innocence mm-hmm. in these moments. But then if the, when if and when they grow up feeling the trauma of these incidents, not being um the uh picture of what we consider innocence in this country then they're punished and they're adultized and made to uh, suffer consequences outside of the uh, confines of what their actual age and maturity is. And so it's just, it's, it's a reproductive justice issue. For me, police brutality from the beginning, I have saw it as a reproductive justice issue because um, not just the children who witness it, but just in general, black children are not allowed to be children. Um, my parents had to start talking to me about race at five years old. Like I, sh- I should not have had to deal with that, but I did because I live in a world that would have introduced it to me if they didn't. So they had to do their jobs as parents so that I could be prepared for a world that might be hostile towards me. So, 
That's just an example, one example that I can give of how an intersectional lens um, of reproductive justice can be applied. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really helpful way of like make concretizing it right now, right here <laughs> in the moment. I think our listeners will be able to grasp exactly what you're talking about. So I appreciate you bringing it right into the current moment. And, and sharing that with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Kenyatta, I appreciate in your discussion of this, both the history of reproductive justice and where it is as a framework and the intersectional nature and naming these systems of oppression and getting it beyond the individual mm-hmm. you and I stuff. And I see it as... Um, especially in learning the history that this is a group of women of color who came together and like entered through this reproductive rights world as a way to build such a big movement for all these other social justice issues, to build that political power, to build the world that is full of liberation, a world that we are imagining and working to realize right here and right now and I am just I'm just so in awe of um the power of women of color taking up space and saying this is ours this is what we're here for this is what we're fighting for and we're going to do it hand in hand arm in arm together to, to bring this other world that we know is possible here yeah I'm I myself am off often um, in all, like when I do t- the RJ 101 trainings that we do um, around the country, I, even though I've done them a, a few times at this point and I know all of the story, I still am always in awe of the um, agency that the founding yes. mothers uh, exercise to say, we are not being called to the table. Our, our needs are not being addressed. So we're just going to create our own table. Yes. Um, you know, yes. Like, you know, and um, it, it's always inspiring for me when I when I reflect on it that you know these our foremothers, uh, our founding mothers, uh, exercised their agency to get their voices heard, mm-hmm. and it's to me in a long tradition of uh, black women and women yes. of color doing that. You know as far back as Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, you know, like black women and women of color um, have, have found ways to reclaim their agency, even in a patriarchal society that would afford them none, you know, you know, and the reality is it's, it's, um, I want to say, oh, it's just what we do. But I, I do I do think that there is a way in which Black women and women of color have come into a place and space now in particular where it is what we do and we're not going to keep only just doing that. That we're right. asking people to think, <laughs> you know, and I say that in, in uh, I have a meme I posted recently that said Black women can't be your target and your shield. Right. And so it's like, right. you know, pick one so that we can you know, work accordingly. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, even though we have a long history of carving out our own way, 
we we're really starting to pivot from that and saying that you know we're tired and we need yeah. help we shouldn't have to like we have been we've done it out of necessity because no one was going to do it for us right but we should not always have to be right doing it you know right. um i don't know if you guys have been watching uh the new uh the lovecraft country that's on hbo i've heard a um, lot about it i have not watched it yet everybody's well, talking about it just full disclosure i am a total blurred i am a sci-fi fantasy geek um and so yes. i love all things <laughs> i love all things uh sci-fi fantasy horror you know that's kind of my lane um and so i was really excited about it coming out anyway but what's really been exciting is having discussions with uh, black women, uh, friends who are also blurs, but also, you know, like womanist, uh, and feminist, uh, theorists. And so like mm-hmm. we seeing all the themes and like in last night's and Sunday night's episode, um, there was kind of an expression of what we're talking about now where they were in this per- precarious situation. The, the, a uh, black man was going to go. The white man who had them at, at gunpoint was like, no, we're not going to let you go because you're going to leave us. And he, he was like, let her go. And um, she was terrified mm-hmm. and he, she was terrified. And the black man looked at her and she is totally scared. He was like, no, she's not going. And she was like, yeah, I'm going. And he was like, why she's like because if I don't who's gonna go and that's a black woman like mm-hmm. if if we don't do it who's gonna do it so we just right. we mm-hmm. do it because nobody else is gonna do it you know what I'm saying right so like right <laughs> I love that you you know for our <laughs> listeners um bringing in you know bringing everything into what's present right now to be able to see themes and ways in which we are so like the reproductive justice and freedom movement, what it looks like in something as, you know, uh, universal as a TV show. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and I think that that's important because oftentimes we relegate it to, oh, it's about these certain things or, oh, you only see it in this certain way. And so that's helping to frame up how, how reproductive freedom and justice and how we are living our lives within the frame of it. And even just watching a show, you can see the themes. And I think we have to do that because real culture change demands that yeah. we not have it right. just be in this little box. Oh, you're in this little box and that's where reproductive freedom and justice <laughs> live. No, no, friends. It, it's like air. It has mm-hmm. to be everywhere or nowhere. Exactly. I mean, I tell people all the time that reproductive justice is this fight for reproductive justice is my lived experience. Even before mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. actually working in advocacy, that was my life. My life was fighting mm-hmm. to have autonomy over my life, over my body, mm-hmm. over the reproductive cho- choices that I made for myself, over the sexual choices that I made for myself. That was my lived experience. Um, even before I was advocating for it for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like um, for black and brown um, indigenous women that is has been true for us um, in this country probably since the beginning. Right. Um, before right. there was a name, we have been fighting to have agency mm-hmm. over our bodies and over our lives and over the decisions we make about our bodies and our lives. Because um, so, the, re- the reality is that if we take it out of this small frame that it currently is, we could be we we're we're better able to help everyone in the world understand 
that this agency we're talking about that we want for us, we want it for them too, men exactly. and marginalized and, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans. Like we have to like take it out of the small box and make sure that people are beginning to understand that this is infused in every aspect of everyone's life. And that, yeah. that to the extent that we can help them understand what it looks like, then we can start to expand the box till there is no box. It just is. And it's so crazy. I don't want to say crazy. Um, it's so interesting that like my mind just works that way. Um, like um, to give you an example, um, last year when Homecoming came out, um, Beyonce's Homecoming, mm-hmm. and everybody was posting about it. And truthfully, what I post, my friend was like, "Girl, you're a reproductive justice advocate, even when you're watching TV." Because all I could think about, all, what I saw was a a professional working mother who represented so many of the other working mothers that I know, who went back to work quicker than she really wanted to, who was missing her babies, mm. but knew that she had to do what she had to do because she had has contracts and things to satisfy, yeah. who came to understanding that her body is now different. It will never be what it was mm. before three babies. You know, like, and um, I saw a Black woman trying to do her best for her children, her family, her community, and coming to the... and. Like literally in that, I saw that point where she, where there was this recollection for her that she would not ever be who she was before her children again. And that mm-hmm. she was juggling these five balls in the air and sometimes one of them might fall and that she just had to reconcile herself with that. But that's what I saw as even though the art was amazing, I, that's all I could see was her, you know what I'm saying? And, right. um, and, and, and how she navigated it, you know? And that's what we have. That's, that's the real, that's the next level work, right? Is that we are taking it out of the shadows, which we mm-hmm. talk about often, but like time. taking it and helping people begin to see that when you look at Beyonce, you're looking at reproductive justice. When you're looking at, mm-hmm. you know, Barack Obama, you're looking at reproductive justice. When you're looking at all of the political figures and personalities and sports, we're, that's what we're looking at helping people to see what they're actually not seeing. Right. Look, what I'm hearing is that our next stage of culture change is Kenyatta on a podcast (laughs) talking about RJ and culture and RJ and the arts and RJ in music. I would listen to that all day. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. Uh, It's so funny because uh, one of my friends who we were talking about Lovecraft Country yesterday, um, she is also an artist and a poet. And we were like kind of going back and forth on a thread. And like the people who were witnessing the thread were like, y'all are freaking awesome. (laughs) But it was just us, you know, uh, being who we are. And she was like, I really would like, she's like, I really would like to do this. This is what I would want to do for my life is just talk about arts in the frame of justice and social justice Mm -hmm. and feminist theory and I was like yeah she's like I'm gonna try to figure out how to make that happen so it's funny that you I'm not saying it's a sign but (laughs) (laughs) you're in it twice in the in the same week I don't know (laughs) we're not saying it's a sign but it's a sign (laughs) it's it's a clear sign Yeah. yeah yeah well I think what we want to do is kind of get a sense of as we're as we're getting to a close of this great conversation is um you know 
share how you envision communities of faith furthering the goals of RJ or joining the movement. Oh, what I would love for communities of faith, like um, even in my work, the term that I use often in my uh, work when uh, here in Georgia and in the Atlanta area through Amplify is compassionate care. Mm -hmm. Um, I Mm -hmm. understand that not everybody will all will believe like I understand that not everybody will um, align with what we believe is reproductive Mm -hmm. justice but what I would like is for faith communities to create an environment of safety for Mm -hmm. women and people who can be pregnant to uh, access their faith when they are making hard reproductive mm-hmm. decisions yes. uh, for their lives. Um, mm-hmm. I would like for faith communities to uh, not weaponize uh, scripture in mm-hmm. ways that are not actually um, true to the scripture to uh, demonize and scare women and people who can be pregnant when they are making uh reproductive decisions for their lives. Um, the, the best way that I can say it is my dad, who is a Pentecostal preacher, <clears throat> um, when I was young, um, told me something that literally has carried me throughout my spiritual journey of my whole life. I probably was about six or seven the first time I heard it, but he used to say it all the time and he even said it across the pul- pulpit. He's like, your relationship between you and God is just that, between you and God, he's like, there's no human on the planet that can tell you that you are saved, that you're not saved. Uh, they don't have a heaven or hell to put you in. And I just mm-hmm. really would like um, faith leaders in in faith communities to lean in the into the uh, stance of guidance and care, and not uh, di- dictatorial. Um, what I call religious fascism. Um, I just, mm. Mm, mm. that that is my goal. <laughs> that is my hope uh, for faith communities. Yeah. That's, mm. that's powerful and eloquently said, thoughtful. And I was like thinking about it, it's like, wow, she's just saying that so much better than I would. I just say, <laughs> could you just don't be horrible and, we know we can't make you give a shit, but could you just stop keeping us from living our best life? But you said right. it way better, mm-hmm. way better. Just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> and that sounds like so much of the work that we try to do with faith communities around eradicating shame, judgment, and stigma around your yes. reproductive story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, And I think that can be so transformative for people to be in the pews and hear a message like that. Um, from the pulpit. And this is a place where I could share my full self. Right. What? Mm-hmm. Right. And like I said, the, 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 my father was a preacher, but he, I tell people all the time, he was a man ahead of his time, even though he was Pentecostal, mm-hmm. he was very well read and, um, what I like to say, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so he, he held some beliefs that were not necessarily um, in direct alignment with the denomination that we were a part of. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he just was a, a much more open-minded uh, 
person than a lot of the clergy that he was um, in the de- denomination with. And so I, I uh, am who I am, I tell people, because of him. Like I, mm-hmm. my political education started with him. Um, mm-hmm. My broadened view of spirituality, spirituality started with him. Um, like I said, he told me um, about my relationship with me and God. He also used to tell me, um, and I'm going to preface this to say that I'm, I don't mean it offensively, but he used to say all the time, uh, to me, never let a preacher take your mind because they will if you let them. Um, that was his oh, oh <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> and so I've always, uh, and even when he preached, he would say that he he would say, "Don't ever take anything that I say across this pulpit at face value. Go look it up mm. for yourself. Interrogate. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And so that was the person who raised me. And so I think that I'm who I am because of him. <laughs> well, it definitely, it definitely shows. Is he, has he passed away? He is now an ancestor. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I, like I said, the, the, the best parts of me are because of he and my mother. That is for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's really powerful. I mean, and especially given the messages that he was very clearly saying, you know, God doesn't need mid management. And also, you know, and that, you know, think for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, that's some church right there. Right. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was always, um, there was always a tension. It was always met with a little tension from the other people, you know, in our denomination. Um, I remember uh, one Sunday, it was the first Sunday that I was old enough to be in the adult Sunday school class. And because you, you, you can go into the adult class until you were 16. And he was teaching Sunday school. And he, he said, he said uh, something. And my aunt, who's also a preacher, I could tell that it pushed against her sensibilities. And they ended up having, it was the first time that I heard people have a discussion about a subject, discuss it, but not necessarily get angry, just to mm. kind of discuss it. And so that that was moving for me. But he was talking about the Bible and, um, you know, the denomination that I grew up in, they described the Bible as being written by men inspired by the Holy Ghost. And so he said, you know, the Bible is uh, written by men inspired by the Holy Ghost. He says, but they were men mm-hmm. who could be uh, influenced by the mores of their time, who, you know, like he kind of went down that road mm-hmm. and you can see the uncomfortableness of the people, <laughs> of the adult, actual adults in the Sunday school class, they were just mm-hmm. not, they had never heard anybody say, say that because for them, mm-hmm. the Bible was inerrant and infallible. And so for him to go down that lane was a stretch for them. Like it stretched them. And, mm-hmm. um, but like I said, that's the person who, who raised me. So mm-hmm. Well, it definitely shows in the work yeah. that you do now. And I have to tell you, he is probably, I, not probably, uh, as an ancestor, extremely proud of who you are and, and mm-hmm. who you've become. And uh, there's no surprise that you are doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I have Thank to you. say that it sounds to me as you're talking about your father, I'd have to say he was a prophet of our times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. powerful. I can see that. Definitely. He, That's like, powerful. Definitely. Yeah. I'm, uh, 
he was always open to new understanding, um, mm-hmm. which is not always the way sometimes for uh, mm-hmm. clergy, but he was always open for new understanding. <laughs> and your life experience and story, as you've shared with us today, is right along that lineage as, mm-hmm. as a prophetess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No wonder you're a priestess and a high yeah. priestess. It yeah. all makes, yeah. makes so much sense. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Kenyatta. This has been such an enriching conversation. Um, it's so, so full. But I would like to take us to our last segment now called Are You at the Edge of the Ledge? It is a series of 10 rapid-fire questions. Okay. I'm going to prompt you and you get one word to one sentence. That's okay. it. That's it. Okay. So just free association real quick. Are you ready? Are you at the edge of the ledge? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Reproductive freedom is? Uh, everyone having the power politically and socially and the resources to make decisions about their reproductive life and health. Mm. What's the one thing you won't talk about with your family? I no longer debate my existence. Mm. What does culture change mean to you? Shifting the narrative. Yes. Faith and abortion are not mutually exclusive. Faith and politics. Hmm. Neither should oppress. Ooh, I love that. What keeps you motivated to do the hard work of abortion advocacy? Hmm. So many things. That one's hard to do in one sentence. <laughs> um... I guess the people. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Name three things that make doing this work possible. Hmm. Well, my faith, my wife, who is extremely supportive, and my creativity. I imagine. Hmm. I imagine a just world. Mm-hmm. That is something I've been ruminating on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shame, judgment, and stigma must be eradicated because... They serve no good purpose. Mm-hmm. What scares you in this work? <sighs> Losing ground already gained. Mm. And our last one, how will we know we have achieved reproductive freedom? When, when we all have the political, social, economic power and resources to make decisions about our families, our reproductive lives, and our reproductive health. That's a great, super yes. creative sentence. I love it. <laughs> So before we close out, I want to give you the opportunity to um, 
shamelessly plug either yourself, your organization, what is it you want our listeners to be left with as they finish listening to you today? Okay, um, I guess a couple of things. Um, one, uh, Sister Song has started a birth justice care fund, um, and the fund is uh, supplying material needs for the women of Georgia where we're, we're uh, headquartered. Um, you can go to our site, sistersong.net, and you can donate to the care fund. If you're a woman in Georgia who needs to um, apply, you can also apply there as well. Um, things that the care fund are providing are things like, for instance, um, we've given out car, car seats to women who could not come home from the hospital without one. Um, we have, we are providing doula and midwif, midwifery service, like giving them funds so that they can pay for doulas and midwives um, for the people who are wanting to birth at home because of the pandemic and not wanting to go to the hospital. So um, yeah, if you can and desire to donate to the, to the care fund, um, just go to sistersong.net um, and you'll see it there. And then the second thing is um, Amplify, which is a, a collaborative that Sister Song is a part of, um, held a cross-movement faith organizing event in January. And um, it was from six areas of advocacy. And the goal was to come up with a progressive faith agenda um, for our state, but that also can be used uh, throughout the nation. Um, the, the world shifted for us, and so we didn't get to finish the full agenda work, but we have created a statement. Um, I, ca I call it a declaration of justice. Um, our view as, as faithful, progressive people of what, we, what a just world looks like for us, and that will be rolling out next week. It's going to be a living document um, that people can sign on to. Um, we are encouraging uh, faith leaders and people of faith and faith organizers to sign on to uh, this um, document. And the ultimate goal is to build pockets of power regionally throughout the um, country where faith organizers across movements can support each other in their work. Um, uh, a lot of times we are all doing faith work, but in our silos um, and not understanding where where these all of our work intersects. And so um, I felt like in this election year time, um, I think that it is pertinent for faithful, uh, progressive people to have our voice be as heard as uh, more conservative voices um, so that people understand that not all faithful people are um, antithetical to freedom and justice. Amen. Yes. Yes. So we will put those links in the show notes so um, our listeners can find them easily. And uh, I just want to oh, thank you so much for being here with us today. What a privilege it has been to have this conversation and get an opportunity to know you better. So that was that was a powerful. I mean, I'm I'm not saying I'm biased. I mean, I am biased, but I would listen to that. I would listen to Kenyatta. I mean, that was a mm -hmm. powerful. She just had so much insight and so many different ways in which she looks at the work that we do. Um, mm -hmm. That it just really was inspiring. 
um, and reminding me of like how many ways in which this work is infuses itself into everyday life. I, I really yeah. appreciate her. How many ways this work is everyday life? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm not joking. I, I, I would, I would listen to Kenyatta's podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> and the importance of how culture is built through art, through TV, through musicians. And I mean, Beyonce's work is more than music videos right. <laughs> for masterpieces. Right. Um, and how important, not just the representation, because we can't stop just at representation, but, but the fullness of, oh, that is that is what I'm seeing. And yes, it's affecting Beyonce just as much as it's affecting you or me or someone else who's pregnant right now or, you know, plenty of folks who have given birth. <laughs> um, yeah. What were your thoughts, Sonia? Well, I was, um, I really was, and I and I said this to her. I was really, um, really moved as she talked about her father and and listening to the things that she that were infused in her, mm-hmm. um, you know, from birth. You know, um, she talked about you know. Uh, how how he has he made an impact and I just thought yeah he really is a prophet um, that's what we talk about being able to speak the truth and 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 set people just slightly off to move us into that zone where we're you know not sitting in the status quo mm-hmm. and and I think that then when you look at her story, that is her story, mm-hmm. right? Right? Mm-hmm. Of, of living that out. Um, and all of it is RJ. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? So right. The, the power of lived experience as part of, of what mm-hmm. created RJ and and... So I, I just felt like, you know, I asked her that question to, to talk about intersectionality and, and what does that mean? And then it was just like, well, actually, everything she talked about was a, 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 a demonstration of what the fullness of that intersectionality and it, it is in the RJ movement. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I... I I think it just helped me open my eyes more to mm-hmm. right. it not just being a framework, but it right. being, right. as you were talking about, it being um, creating what is, mm-hmm. and that is reproductive justice. Right. right. Embodying, ta- taking this academic framework out of the academy into the bodies and the lived experiences of mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I take away from, especially the conversation about her dad, is just how important um, it is that we as faith leaders really embody and create ways of being that are oriented toward justice. And we don't even, you know, on this podcast, we're talking about abortion, faith, and politics. 
but we don't have to be talking about that to give permission to people for people to question to ask questions of a sacred text to ask questions of uh, a tradition or um a community that they've been a part of and it it is the big powerful prophetic moments when you get out and you're yelling in a microphone and whatever and it's the everyday conversations it's mm-hmm. the sunday school classes where you say well what about this and what mm-hmm. about this it's watching a tv show and talking about it on with friends on social media mm-hmm. in through yeah. the lens of reproductive right. justice it is that right mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, it's the the big moments and the culmination of all these baby moments that really mm-hmm. are how we change the culture and change the world. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. You can find us online at our website, JustTX.org or connect with us on social media at WeAreJustTX. If you have a question or comment, we would love to hear from you. Our podcast email is edgeoftheledge at tfn.org and that's ledge, L-E-G-E. And if you've listened this far, you're obviously invested, my friend, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast is a production of Just Texas, a project of the Texas Freedom Network, hosted by Reverend Erica Forbes, Sonia Miller, and Reverend Angela Williams, edited by Aria Levantine, music by Brandon Torrio, album cover design by Reba Ballant, and produced by Jules Mandel.